Hi, friends. Welcome to the View from the Front podcast, a show about military and defense news designed for serious people who love their country more than they love their political party. It's a show for moderates who are tired of their news being from the left or the right or being over the top and scary. I fully understand how frustrated most Americans feel at how divided we are, and I am the very opposite of most news organizations who often write articles that are too alarming. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior infantry Marine who dropped the sword and picked up the pen. After joining the Marine Corps at the age of 17 to serve four years in the infantry, I exited military service, earned a degree, and spent 10-plus years in the news business, initially as a reporter, but then going on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while it's true I'm still writing, I'm now here as well, a -a twice-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both his country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. If you were to ask anyone who lived in Oak Ridge during the nine years that I owned that weekly newspaper, they would tell you that I sought to downplay controversy, I worked hard to understate headlines, and I did my absolute best to never create panic, which is a terrible way to sell newspapers, but a responsible way for a media outlet to act. I plan to do these same things with my podcast. I love the news, and we need the news, but we need to have news that's less over the top. News that folks don't dread to hear because it's too scary, and news that isn't so blown out of proportion and fear-based that it was clearly written to be shared and scare the devil out of people. The news shouldn't be a game intended to grab eyeballs and monetize dollars. It's an absolute fact that our democracy doesn't work if we don't have informed voters. And since we're talking about the news and informed voters, let me say this. I'm convinced that foreign policy decisions are the most important decisions that we face as a country. They lead to greater consequences on the world stage, and they can lead to tragic deaths, either because we shouldn't have intervened somewhere, or perhaps because we should have. America is the world's leading power, and we mostly lead the world from a position of moral authority, showing other countries how they should behave in regards to ethics, restraint, and providing freedom for their citizens. Foreign policy decisions can be tragic and heartbreaking, and it's important that we get them right. It's also crucial that when we get them wrong, such as when we did in the Vietnam War, then the faster we can course correct, the faster we can reduce how many lives we lose. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do think much can be gained from discussing these issues and creating a community where we intelligently discuss the troubles confronting us and where we work to come closer together and respect each other's views with more patience and kindness. A house divided cannot stand, and I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. I will not remain silent while politicians seeking their own personal gain try to throw gas on a dangerous fire, doing their best to tear apart this country so that they can advance to a higher office. I will also not remain silent when we have media organizations doing great harm to our country by scaring people or creating panic. We face great challenges as a country. But America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. So, let's get a little better informed, 
and let's work to get a little more united as a people. Thank you for being patient and allowing me to share that monologue. I think it's important people hear what I'm about before they listen too long. And I think it's also important my regular listeners hear this message enough that it sinks in, that it affects what they believe, that it affects how they act. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. Thanks again for your patience on this intro. I know it's not the sort of fast-paced, really hip, Twitter-friendly, TikTok-cool intro that fits most podcasts that go viral, but maybe we've got a few too many podcasts that are like that. Maybe we need to go back to something deeper, to something firmer and more solid, to something we can build a foundation from, and that's what I'm offering. And with that, let's get started. This is the September 2nd edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please consider subscribing. At a minimum, subscribe to the podcast through whatever channel you're listening to us on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Cast, etc. All of my podcasts are free, but if you really want to be a rock star and support what we're doing, you can sign up at my Substack for $5 a month. Not only will that help encourage and sustain what we're doing here, hopefully make it better as well, but it will also get you the Tuesday post on Tuesday The Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day unless you're a paid subscriber. So if you're not a paid subscriber, you'll get those on Wednesday. If you can support this show and you want to, then you'll get those on Tuesday. Uh, It's just a small thing we do to hopefully encourage folks to support what we're doing here if they can. But at the same time, it doesn't really penalize you if you can't make that $5 a month payment. At most, you're waiting an additional day. The first story I wanted to share today involves Ukraine and, and the Russian invasion. We have been discussing the need for international inspectors at the uh, Ukrainian nuclear plant, and that has finally at least started to happen. I've got a link in the source notes from the Washington Post, and it quotes uh, Rafael Grossi, who's the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And the story lays out that the goal of of his multi-day inspection was to set up a permanent monitoring mission at the plant and assess the safety situation here. Um, So it talks a bit about um, what we've talked about in the previous days and um, how there's been firing around there. As you know, on the last podcast, I I showed uh, photos that Russia clearly has vehicles, armed armored personnel carriers at the site. There has been fighting around it. There have been rounds that have impacted it. I had photos to that in the last episode as well. Um, the article does explain what I've talked about, that the plant is currently occupied by and controlled by Russian forces uh, operated by Ukrainian engineers. And I wanted to share two other parts from that article. The first was just a well-written line or sentence that explains what I've tried to explain. And as usual, the Washington Post describes it better than I could possibly do. But uh, the sentence is this, over the past few months, it it, being the nuclear plant, has experienced a frightening array of artillery barrages, uncontrolled fires, and power outages with a skeleton crew of workers sometimes held at gunpoint. I had said in the last podcast that, you know, some of these workers are, you know, being held at gunpoint, if not held hostage, and then I I didn't really put anything in the source notes to confirm that. I had seen that numerous times on Twitter, including with videos of some of the workers, but then I kind of was kicking myself afterward because I thought, well, if someone tries to call me on that, I don't have that in the source notes. It's just me saying what I've seen on Twitter. 
But there you go. It's in the Washington Post, and they have definitely verified this. And I wanted to also, everyone knows who's been listening to me from the beginning, I am as pro-Ukrainian as it comes, um, and not because I care about, you know, not that I have some kind of Ukrainian roots or something, but that I feel that they're a country that's trying to be a, you know, a democracy. They've obviously been struggling with that, as any new democracy has. I feel they were wrongfully invaded, and I feel that the Russians have committed unbelievable amounts of atrocities, war crimes, etc. I've been clear about all of that from the beginning, but... I always want to call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. And I wanted to mention one thing from the Washington Post article that I have to kind of slap the Ukrainians for. I'll read this sentence, or two sentences, I apologize. Grossi, he's the head of that organization, had been negotiating a visit to the nuclear plant since March when Russian forces first seized the facility. A proposal to enter through Russian-occupied Crimea was rejected by Ukraine which viewed that itinerary as an, as an affront to its sovereignty. So there you go. In an effort to always try to be fair, I mean, I think that's total, um, you know, it's just outlandish to me that the Ukrainians would slow down these inspectors getting in there because they're worried about what appears to be their sovereignty. Uh, I would have liked to have seen inspectors in there sooner. I'm pretty sure most Ukrainian citizens and residents in that area would have felt the same way. So I'm not real sure why they got so tied up on this, quote, affront to their sovereignty, but I think the Ukrainians were wrong on that. And um, so there you go. I'm going to call it out the way I see it. The second thing I wanted to share regarding Ukraine is for weeks we've talked about a potential offensive in the Kherson region. That's the southern part of Ukraine, as a reminder for my new listeners. There's been a lot of fighting in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region. That's a large, wide area. It's involved large-scale and long-range artillery barrages. But in the southern part, the Ukrainians have been wanting to drive south through Kherson and basically work toward freeing the Crimean Peninsula, which was initially seized in 2014. It's a very valuable strategic area for the country, and it also would help um, basically reclaim something they've wanted since 2014. It's the, the Russians built a major naval base down there, and there's a very long land or a very long bridge and train bridge which run parallel. I've talked about that in previous episodes that connect Russia to Crimea. And so this is crucial long term that the um, Ukrainians reclaim this. So we've been talking about setting up an offensive. There's increasing talk about an offensive. You can find some articles online about the offensive, but what you'll find in almost all of them is that no one really knows how successful this offensive is, how far they're driving. It's uh, really still very early on, and I, I don't even really know how to characterize it, but it does appear they're advancing. They're making some short advances. We've talked in previous episodes that they've hit bridges that would care, uh, cut off part of the Russian troops. Uh, there's a, a river there called the Dnipro River, and so Dnipro River, apologize. Um, and so there are Russian troops that are isolated, barely able to get supplies or reinforcements through basically pontoon bridges because the Ukrainians have destroyed other bridges that connect this area. So the Ukrainians are definitely beginning to drive south. I wanted to share from the source notes that one thing that has come out that's, I think, pretty big deal is 
CNN is reporting that the U.S. has actually been um, in talks with the Ukrainians and that the U.S. urged Ukraine to limit its operation, its attack to the south. So according to the story, they wanted to limit the objectives to the south, but they also urged Ukraine not to do a wider offensive, which it seems to imply they were referring to the Donbass region as well. The U.S. military advisors were warning um, Ukraine that it would extend their um, supply lines and possibly overextend them, that it could bog them down. And so there were discussions that included, quote, wargaming, end quote, with Ukraine, according to sources, and that in these analytical exercises, it showed that Ukraine should basically just push to the south toward Kherson and not do a broader counteroffensive. So I've got a link to that story. CNN did get a comment from the military, and I thought this was an interesting comment as well. And this is from Brigadier General Pat Ryder, and he tells CNN that the United States has routine military-to-military dialogue at multiple levels with Ukraine. We will not comment on the specifics of those engagements Generally speaking, we provide the Ukrainians with information to help them better understand the threats they face and defend their country against Russian aggression. Ultimately, the Ukrainians are making the final decisions for their operations. So I thought I'd put this in the source notes and talk about it for just a moment, just because there have been lots of analysts speculate for the past few months, pretty much since the beginning of the invasion, actually, There's been discussions about how much have the Americans and and the West, perhaps other European countries as well, how much have they been advising? Have they been using satellites to even find targets of Russian, you know, artillery areas, ammunition depots, etc.? And there hasn't been a whole lot of, um, I guess, clear evidence on how much was being assisted, but this was... You know, I wanted to quote this story, and this is definitely an on-the-record comment from a Pentagon spokesperson. We're definitely helping them plan stuff, and on the targeting thing, nothing super clear now, but I would dare say we're helping them with their targeting as well. Staying on this topic of an offensive, I wanted to quote a couple of small parts from a column from David Ignatius. He's a Washington Post columnist. He's a frequent commenter on news about foreign policy. He is just an absolute expert, and his commentary is always very insightful. And I wanted to read just two paragraphs from his column, uh, and I'll just begin. The Russian military is disoriented because of the pounding they've received, U.S. officials believe. Analysts estimate that Russia has lost thousands of officers, including hundreds of colonels and dozens of generals. The relentless attacks have forced Russian commanders to keep moving headquarters posts, adding to their command and logistical problems. Ukraine's other big advantage in this news phase of the war is the partisan campaign behind the lines against the Russian occupiers. U.S. military commanders warned their Russian counterparts to expect this brutal, irregular warfare based on the U.S. experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. Russian officials didn't listen, and now they're facing attacks they didn't see coming and can't root out despite all their firepower. Every Ukrainian with a cell phone is an artillery spotter, or intelligence collector. I just thought that was incredibly a good summary of things we've tried to discuss in previous episodes, such as when we talked about the the attack on the Russian airfield in um, Crimea. But uh, he makes some really good points there about how the Russians 
it's going to start getting in their head as to which Ukrainians are possibly reporting on them, etc. And and the Ukrainian civilians deserve just unbelievable amounts of uh, praise for the courage they've shown. It it would take tremendous courage to report on Russian positions and all, because I know the Russians are trying to root this out with their intelligence agencies, and I am sure that there have even been innocent Ukrainians who have paid the ultimate price, innocent civilians I'm is what I meant to say, for um, reporting on the Russians when perhaps they didn't even do so. So anyone who does report has to know that they're basically you know, somewhat endangering their their friends and neighbors and family. So it's unbelievable the amount of uh, courage that Ukrainians are showing. And he made one other point, uh, he being David Ignatius, that I did want to mention, which is that the, Ameri- the American military had been working with Ukrainian special operations forces for seven years, which, of course, going back to 2014, which, as we've said before, is when Russia initially invaded and the one thing he he stated, as usual, his his uh, analysis is just so so strong and deep. Um, he's just really good at research and has great contacts in the military and other foreign governments. But he stated that um, each Ukrainian special operations brigade last year created and trained a quote resistance company recruited from the local population in areas such as Kherson. So I only mention that just because. That is huge. If in these areas, if the Ukrainians were smart enough to basically already have locally connected and trained forces that have basically stayed behind as the Russians advanced, then the Russians are in even more trouble than they they probably realize they are because that is a, you know, you can study military history from in World War II when America was trying to use the OSS to you know, get contacts in France and, and Germany and, you know, to drop from planes weapons and explosives and even simple things such as radios. It, it was hard to do, and the Germans would often, you know, find these parachutes or they would see these operations and they would seize spies. They would often execute them or they would try to turn them, which was often even more effective. But to know that the uh, Ukrainians have, instead of trying to create these contacts, they already have these contacts. They already probably already have plans. They might even have uh, hidden weapon supplies, etc. So, uh, great point by David Ignatius there, and I, I imagine that this is a huge advantage that we're pro- we've probably already seen and may see even more as this offensive toward the South begins. I'll definitely keep everyone posted on the situation as the offensive and its objectives and and its pace as it starts to be better mapped out by the media. We'll definitely talk about that, so I'll try to have an update on that on Tuesday. One final thing I wanted to discuss in regards to Russia and Ukraine is there's a story that broke out, and I guess I shouldn't chuckle, it's sad, honestly, but um, the way that it's being reported is, is almost humorous, but... There's a Russian oligarch. He was the chairman of a Russian oil and gas giant called Luke Oil, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, He has apparently died after falling out of a hospital window, according to state news agencies. And he is certainly not the first Russian who has died in such a horrific fashion. He had spoke out against the war. And so I've got a story that is linked to it from CNN. And, um, 
it's obviously sad. It's horrible that in Russia um, you can't speak out on these things. But I just wanted to make sure I put that in the source notes. Uh, his name was Reveal uh, Maganov. He died at the Central Clinic Hospital west of Moscow, according to the reports. And he fell out of a sixth-floor window at 7 a.m., died as a result of the injuries. And although his own company is saying that he died following a severe illness. So the Russians are trying to say it wasn't a fall. And some of the, um, I guess in their propaganda, they're going to try to say he was just ill. But it's um, it's terrible that some of these oligarchs haven't been able to kind of make the first move and, and do something to remove Vladimir Putin because uh, it's a dangerous place to be in, in Russia, whether you're someone who's just carrying a sign or saying that there's a war happening or whether you're the head of a large company. Um, they do not tolerate dissent, and this is yet more proof of someone that Vladimir Putin has had killed, and it's horrific. But um, it's it's almost humorous watching how they try to spin this, that he had some kind of severe illness or something like that after the fact. That's probably what they'll say. It's also a little interesting, I guess, that um, and, and it might show some Russian weakness that literally the best they can do is continue to uh, have opponents die from falling out of windows. And it just seems so um, amateurish as far as spycraft goes that uh, that's the best they can do, that they can't take someone out in their sleep. They can't there's a, you know, we've all read plenty of better ways to make this happen, whether it's an accidental car wreck, etc. But the best they can do, and maybe they don't even care, maybe the whole point isn't even to hide it, but is to just throw someone out a window and then just say, hey, they got sick, severe illness. And everyone just shuts up, no one asks questions and goes about it. Maybe that's how things have to run in Russia. I'm not sure, but did want to point that out. Uh, I keep hoping that at some point someone might take Vladimir Putin down, but it doesn't. It seems more and more remote, honestly, as the weeks pass. Okay, let's move a bit from Russia and let's talk about something that's a little bit more general as far as the military and Department of Defense goes. I wanted to highlight a speech that was given this week. And before I do that, let me just say, you know, this goes back to when I used to own a weekly newspaper. And often the thing the media does is it's lo- people always run with these he said, she said stories or these stories of controversy. And often... If you just report the things that leaders are saying, you can learn a lot. And you can see things that are much deeper than just two loudmouth folks on, you know, whether it's a city council or whether it's Congress just yelling back and forth at each other, worrying about the next election. Sometimes if you just read documents or listen to what are, you know, kind of mundane, boring speeches, you will learn some things. And so I say that as sort of a pre- or kind of a precursor to what I want to bring up from a speech that was this is all public information, easily accessible and posted on the Department of Defense's uh, website. It was from a speech. I'll quote from it. It's from the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks. So it's a very high ranking member of the Department of Defense. And it's, in theory, just a very boring speech, but I think you'll see there's some nuggets in here. So I wanted to share part of this speech that she gave. Uh, She gave this to DARPA, 
Um, they do a lot of research for the military. And so, um, so this is just the Deputy Secretary of Defense speaking to a group of uh, scientists and researchers. And I've got the link to the Department of Defense website if you want to go read more of it. But I'm just going to highlight a few things from it. So we'll begin with what are the threats or the big challenges that America faces. And so here's part of the speech from Dr. Hicks. We face a pacing challenge in the People's Republic of China, which is today the most consequential strategic competitor to the United States on the global stage. We face in Russia an acute threat to the international system, as illustrated by its ongoing brutal war of choice against Ukraine. We face persistent regional threats, like those emanating from North Korea, Iran, and violent extremist organizations. And we face threats that transcend national and regional borders, including pandemics like COVID-19 and climate change. So that is some of the, that's a list, I guess, of the things the United States is worried about. And then uh, Dr. Hicks goes on to explain what they're trying to, some of the problems they're trying to solve at DARPA. I was probably negligent that I should say DARPA stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and just a sentence or two about them. There were 220 government employees and six technical offices, and they include about 100 program managers, and they together oversee 250 research and development projects. So they're doing a lot of things across a wide range of uh, subjects. So. Let me just continue now with some of the things they're trying to solve, because this too, you can pick up a clue or two in here if you're listening. Dr. Hicks says, With like-minded friends and allies around the world, we're able to figure out some really wicked problems, like how to resupply and reinforce Army and Marine Corps units spread out on islands across half a hemisphere with capabilities like distributed additive manufacturing, and proliferated low-signature delivery systems so they can operate and be sustained no matter what an enemy does or how contested the logistics environment gets, or how we integrate sensors and fuse data across every domain while leveraging cutting-edge decision support tools to enable high-tempo operations. And then it goes just a bit into that um, about the data and the something called a joint all-domain do all command and control approach. Now, like most speeches, uh, it kind of gets into the bureaucratic. You can tell by some of those words. They just don't come out and say what they're trying to say, and they use these really you know, $10 words to basically say, we're trying to figure out how to resupply Marines and sailors on islands when there might be you know, potential naval conflict happening with China, and how do we get them resupplied, keeping them fed, stay in you know, contact with them if there's um, large electronic warfare happening. That's basically what they're saying, and they're just using some big words for that. But it's interesting that they're already trying to figure out that um, possible reality, and I'm sure they're probably quite a bit further down that road than we can even imagine. One other thing it mentioned is uh, the future of autonomous vehicles. We've talked about in previous episodes, whether it's ships that have gone thousands of miles um, autonomously and obviously other types of vehicles, including um, ground vehicles, air vehicles. They're obviously working on that. And from there, Dr. Hicks gets to the end of the speech and there's some questions and answers. And um, I wanted to share just a bit of that because the, Dr. Hicks gets a question about... 
basically the China situation. And I want to just kind of read part of this answer because uh, it's, it's really honestly a good answer. Um, Dr. Hicks was obviously prepared to answer this, but uh, it's about two paragraphs. So if you'll give me just a little latitude on it, I think you'll uh, appreciate this. So Dr. Hicks answers, first of all, AUKUS is right at the top of that. And for those that may not be aware, AUKUS is the U.S., Australia, and Great Britain coming together in an intentional way to focus on how we achieve mutual advantage by sharing on the research and development and ultimately production side on technology. There are a couple of different aspects. The one big pillar one, it's called one big area is undersea warfare capability. Obviously, this is not a prepared answer, so Dr. Hicks is speaking, you know, just from the shooting from the hip. But one big area is undersea warfare capability and making sure we can mutually strengthen our undersea capabilities. Again, that's an area of advantage for the United States and its Western allies. So making sure we can keep that as an enduring advantage will require us to continue staying on the cutting edge of that technology. But we don't stop there. We have many other bilateral, trilateral, and even in the case of Asia, a quad approach where we're constantly working with others on the operational challenges they'll face. I'll say again, some of our Asia-Pacific partners are focused more than anything on climate change. So sometimes it's something like that where their defense communities are very focused on the existential risk if they're island nations, for instance. And sometimes it's all the way up at the higher end of potential warfare, making sure that they can protect themselves against anything from hypersonic missile systems to nuclear capabilities that could be put forward and everything in between. We need allies and partners where they are on the things they want to work on together. I think she meant to say we meet allies and partners, but it might be a transcription error. But there's a lot of opportunity in that. And we also, by taking that approach, by focusing on ensuring stability in the region, rather than trying to increase tensions, we become the partner of choice for many in the region. That protects us economically, and it protects us in our security realm. And it was that last part, I obviously wanted to talk about the apparent edge that we have in submarines and underwater um, capabilities. But it's that last part that I think that, I, I guess I kind of assume it being from the West that, you know, America is a is a much better choice as a partner than China. We constantly see China do things to manipulate, control. Um, there's, there's no nice way to say it, but they're just not as open and free of a society as us. And so as our, our strategic um, competition heats up in the Pacific. All of, a lot of these island nations and a lot of the countries there are, are being forced to make a decision. And I, I really like that part of her answer that America wants to become the partner of choice for many in that region. And we can see that everywhere from the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. We can just name just probably dozens of nations that we want to be seen as as the good guy, because ultimately China is um, expanding its influence, it's growing its military, it's increasing its pressure on nations around it, and we're obviously trying to be the the country that uh, wants to help try to deter th their uh, intentions. So I thought that was worth sharing. Hope you all got something from that, so I appreciate your patience with letting me share that. Um, but for me, at least, that was awesome, really interesting stuff. 
I'm going to go ahead and put a bit of a teaser in this episode for Tuesday's episode. And in that one, I plan on sharing some information um, from a, a guest column from Senator Chris Murphy about how to kind of a strategy going forward involving Taiwan and China, and also one from a thriller author, uh, Brad Thor. They both have some really good points. I really wanted to dive into them today, but just with the time, I couldn't pull that off. But that's something you guys can be um, looking forward to for Tuesday. So we've covered a lot. Let's move to the uh, best part of the episode, the motivation and wisdom part. I always try to start with something good, and I am sharing a video that will just absolutely warm your heart, make you smile, the kind of content we all go to Facebook, Twitter, etc. for. And it's a video of a baby elephant chasing birds and what ends up happening and how the mother reacts. It's heartwarming. It's absolutely worth going to look at. And um, if you go there and it doesn't do something for you, I don't know, send me an email and complain or maybe look in the mirror and figure out what's going on with you because it's pretty adorable. It's kind of heart-touching and um, definitely worth going to see. So, as I say every week, I just, I'm just going to read these. These are all great people to follow on Twitter, so let's just get started. The first one, do it alone. Do it broke. Do it tired. Do it scared. Just do it. That was a great one. Hope everyone's got a dream or something you're thinking about. Care about what other people think, and you will always be their prisoner. A little something for all of us to think, and sometimes that applies to family. I think we could probably name some people that... Uh, we all know um, sometimes family can hold you back, so um, you gotta be you gotta care what they think about to some degree, but maybe not let them control you. All right, let's go to the next one. The only downside of improving yourself it gets lonely. I like that one. Although I would counter that as you improve yourself and move up, you find new friends who have improved themselves and they help lift you further. So I'll kind of counter that one a little bit. Next one, get better all the time. That's how you succeed. That's another good one. Next one. Forgive your old self. You've changed. I like that one. That one kind of hit home for me. Uh, you know, I used to call this just the motivational part. And I used to just put motivational stuff in. But as time has changed or, or passed, I've added what I call wisdom. And so I think um, it's good to work on your motivation and work toward your dreams. But you also got to, like, grow as a person. So forgive your old self. You've changed. Next one. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I've heard that one before, but man, that's a great one. Love yourself. Respect yourself. Never sell yourself short. Believe in yourself regardless of what other people think. You can accomplish anything, absolute anything, if you set your mind to it. Another good one. Another one. I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit. Suffer now and live the rest of your life as a champion. That was apparently Muhammad Ali. Next one. Give yourself credit for trying. Working on yourself can be hard, but the rewards of not giving up can really change your life. Keep going. I love that. Keep going. Let's all think about that one as we're possibly, hopefully, doing some things this weekend to chase our dreams. Next one. When you speak, always speak with strong confidence. Watch the difference it makes. That was a great one. Next one. A goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. That's really good. I know a lot of people, we all got friends who are in day jobs that you can just see it. It's just kind of like sucked the soul out of them. And they're just, they're living, but man, 
just they're just kind of barely surviving. I like that though. A goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. We all have things that we should be chasing, don't we? All right. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. As a reminder, The View from the Front is a reader-supported publication. The best way to make this work sustainable and to help improve it is with a paid subscription. But at the same time, free ones are appreciated too. I've got a link into the, in the source notes on how you can subscribe. You can do that from our website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. And you can subscribe to the show. That'll make sure you don't miss any. As a reminder, please be kind. Try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work to unite this country. Also, try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media, how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you have a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, reach out to them. Finally, and this especially goes to all my awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Please. Call that friend or family member. Do it for us all. We've already lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. And so I'm asking you to be brave once more. Show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member, someone who can help. Uh, with that, I appreciate each and every one of you. Every tweet, every share, every email, etc. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. And I love each and every one of you all out there. So please join me again in our next episode. Stay safe until then. Thanks again, everyone. You guys are the best. As always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. I think you'll enjoy them. Highly rated. They sell pretty well. And with that, I'm out.